Welcome to the Craft Brewery Financial Training Podcast, where we combine beer and numbers to provide you with tips, tactics, and strategies so that you can improve financial results in your brewery. I'm your host, Kerry Shumway, a CPA, CFO for a brewery, and a former CFO for a beer distributor. I've spent the last 20 years using finance to improve financial results in our beer business. Now I'm helping other craft breweries to do the same. Are you ready to take your brewery financial results to the next level? Okay, let's get started. Today on the podcast, we hear from Candace Moon, the craft beer attorney. Candace and I talk about the laws and the things to consider when you want to open up a brewery. First, we talk about entity choice. How do you choose what type of legal entity? What are your options? Then we get into all the documents that you'll need for that entity, such as the operating agreement and what that is and what it means and what to look out for in there. We talk about securities law. It doesn't get talked about much, uh, but it's super important, particularly if you're going to be raising money uh, to start your brewery. We talk about contracts, compliance with all the different state and federal rules. There are so many rules out there. And really how to build your team so that you don't have to do all this yourself. There's legal considerations, tax considerations, insurance. There's all sorts of things to think about. So really building a team is super important. So for now, please enjoy this conversation with Candace Boone, the craft beer attorney. Hey, Candace, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Well, it is wonderful to have you here. So why don't you give the listeners some background on you and your business? Okay. So my name is Candace Moon and I, my company is the Craft Beer Attorney. I uh, have been practicing law uh, with craft breweries, uh, wow, for almost 13 years, basically since I graduated from law school. So I was a bartender to craft beer bar during law school, met a whole bunch of brewers and didn't really know what I wanted to do when I graduated and ended up meeting a wine lawyer and went, wow, it's a wine lawyer. I don't know any beer lawyers. I'm going to be a beer lawyer. <laughs> and so I, you know, worked out of my house and basically I knew all these brewers from, from bartending and yeah, it's, it's, and, and it's now been 13 years. It's, it's grown and there's been a few different iterations of my company I was on my own. Then I hired some people and started my own firm, went to a bigger firm, went back on my own, have now hired a couple of people. <laughs> so, it evolves, um, right? It, it evolves. Exactly. Exactly. Well, that's so awesome. yeah, so I've been working with um, craft breweries and, and some of the other craft beverages um, from everything from business formation to trademarks, to licensing, to compliance uh, and really operating as a general counsel, I would say like an, an outside in-house <laughs> outhouse. In I don't know how you want to say it, but nice. And you got a great name, the craft beer attorney, right? That's yeah. Pretty good one. And that's your website as well. Exactly. Exactly. Cool. So we're going to, what we're going to talk about today is the laws and considerations when you're opening a brewery, because, you know, there's still tons and tons of people that want to open a brewery, right? Um, mm -hmm. And there's tons and tons of things to think about um, as they're doing that. So many of the breweries are out there either in that sort of dreaming phase. Hey, I'd love to do this. Maybe sort of dabbling, home brewing, talking about it. And others are really actively planning. So I think this is probably going to be best for those that are in those kind of two buckets where you're like actively. These are the things to think about really before you're open. 
I think once you're open, yeah, sure. You can, you can use these things too, but then you're like, oh, wow, probably should, should do these things before, before opening your doors. Um, so I guess let's, let's just talk about the entity choice. So this is like, you know, what are the options? You know, most folks are like, oh, it's, we're just going to do an LLC. So what are the options and what are the more popular ones that you're seeing these days? So, and it just kind of as a disclaimer, I'm going to very much big picture most of these questions because uh, the one thing you learn as a lawyer is everything is very uh, fact dependent. So your situation may not fit into these general answers, but for the most part, um, I mean, really the big options are, well, one option is not having an entity. And I have known breweries who did not have an entity. Um, and as a lawyer, I will highly uh, uh, advise against not having an entity. <laughs> um, the main ones people are looking at are LLCs or corporations. There's a couple of different versions of corporations. There's um, just a regular corporation and then what's called an S corporation, which is really for uh, smaller companies, um, both of which have um, very different tax ramifications. So I will also say that anytime I'm talking to someone about entity choice, I always recommend talking to their accountant as well, because your accountant may bring that one piece that makes you special and different. Um, you could be a partnership and I'll be honest with you, I know of a couple, but I don't have one client out of probably the 500 people I've worked with or 500 breweries I've worked with that are partnerships. Um, uh, and most are LLCs. Um, and I think part of that, and again, this is where I'm going to go pretty high level. Um, and you definitely would want to talk to a corporate, uh, attorney, uh, in more detail. Um, but the nice thing about an LLC is that you can pretty much make up the rules. So if you decide to be a corporation and um, I'll just use California as an example, the, there's a California corporate code and the corporate code pretty much tells you how you're gonna run your business. Like how many shareholders have to have, what percentage vote, what, what the rules are gonna be in regards to your shareholders and how you wanna manage control of the business and those types of things. Um, Whereas with an LLC, the law basically says, here's like six things you have to do. And otherwise you get to choose. So in a lot of ways, it's a very flexible type of entity. And one of the reasons I tend to recommend it the most is because with the majority of my clients, these are small mom and pops um, who are not necessarily putting in the most money. So a lot of them are having friends and family put in money. Um, maybe they're going to be looking to bring in fundraising. And the nice thing with an LLC, which is similar to a corporation, is that um, you can basically set it up so that you can maintain control no matter how much money you put in. And that's the same true with a corporation. But in a corporation to do that, you have to create different classes of stock and it gets a little more complicated. Mm -hmm. um, the other thing is with also with a corporation, there the tax ramifications are a little more. Um, what's the word I want? You're going to pay more taxes. Let's just put it that way. Yeah. Um, unless you choose to do an S corporation, which I mentioned earlier for smaller companies. But the kind of 
difficulty with the S corporation is that all shareholders is basically one class of stock. So yeah, I kind of think of it as you get rewarded by keeping it simple so that you get the same tax situation as an LLC where it's a pass-through organization and the company doesn't pay taxes. But in an S-corp situation, as shareholders, you all have the same rights and responsibilities because it's one class of stock, which also makes it harder to maintain control if you're not putting in the most money. Mm -hmm. Or you think that down the road, you may take a large amount of money, a a very large money from someone else. Mm -hmm. So again, that's a very simplification (laughs) of it. But I mean, and the the main reason to have an entity, because I did mention I would never advise not having one is that that entity and it's funny so when I give this I do a presentation my visual for this is a little kid with a football helmet on because that entity is your helmet it protects you from basically if there are if you have problems with the entity if there are financial issues if you end up getting sued if you file bankruptcy the entity and this is if you do it correctly you've got to you know follow all the rules with with entities, but it will protect your personal assets. So you won't lose your house. You won't, you know, you won't lose, well, I don't know, what other personal assets you want. I don't have a lot of personal assets. Your, your bank account. <laughs> um, but it's just a way of keeping the entity's debts with the entity and mm-hmm. not coming into your personal. Makes sense. Okay, good. Thank you for that. So each, so first step, Obviously, talk with an attorney uh, about your tr- your specific circumstances. Here's what we're thinking of doing. Um, talk with your tax person about what the tax ramifications might look like. So, but the the most popular one right now is LLC for the reasons that you've stated. It's 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 fairly simple, um, but definitely have those conversations. So, w- if we if we land on okay, so you you. First, you got to have some sort of legal entity. Second, you need to choose what sort of um, type that's going to be. Then there's all these entity documents, right? So making the choice <laughs> is one thing. What are what are these documents? And maybe we settle on LLCs just because it happens to be the most. What documents should people be uh, be looking for, and, and how does all that work? Gotcha. Well, the easiest thing. Uh, and the LLC is the articles and forming it because generally that's dictated by the state. A lot of times it's a form. The most important document you're going to have is the operating agreement. And this is generally a pretty lengthy document that talks about how you're going to run the company, who's responsible for what, um, you know, how the company will protect people as individuals, um, who's going to make decisions about what. And it's Really, 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 really important. And you know, the longer I've been working with with clients, you know, it's you start to see how important it becomes because it's when you start a business with someone, it is. I, I might even say more intense than getting married. <laughs> You're, I mean, you are marrying this person, and the business is your child. And you know, it is very common that people have issues along the way. And the more you can figure out how you want to handle possible issues down the road, upfront, similar to a prenup, um, just the easier things are going to be. Because life happens, you know, things change in people's lives. You know, I've had people where, 
you know, one partner's spouse got an amazing job on the other coast. So it's not like they want to leave, but they need to leave. And it's like, if they didn't set up in an operating agreement, how someone's going to leave and how that's going to work out, um, it can actually get very contentious. And then there are times where it just is contentious. Like two people realize they really can't work together or don't want to. Well, how do they split up? And then how do you split the baby? And I really talk to a lot of startups about, especially if there's two people or two couples or two, where it's like, okay, now, you know, you want to be 50-50. Okay. What happens? Like if this, you know, if someone if you, if something goes crazy and you guys, I mean, it's always hard. It's a tough question to bring up because especially when you have like a husband wife, sorry, but I got to ask like, what happens? Let's just say one of you goes off the deep end and, you know, let's, you know, imagine if this were to happen, um, who gets the business, you know, who's, who's the, whose baby is this really, or is it a, a really both people's babies? And I've actually, a lot recently been using what's called a shotgun clause. And just so to explain what that is, is basically, because inevitably what happens is everybody wants the business. Nobody wants to be bought out and leave, or if they do, they want a much larger amount of money than the business can afford to pay them to get out. And, and I get that. I mean, it's very emotional and, you, you know, people put their heart and soul into something and it's hard to walk away from that. So. The shotgun clause is where, and again, we'll just assume two people. Um, one person just gets to the point that they can't take it anymore. Like this just isn't working. And they basically say, they set the price. Here's the price, the value of my 50%, of the 50%. The other person gets to choose, do they, do they buy or do they sell? So there's really no incentive for one person to set a price that isn't truly fair because they're going to have to, it, they're either going to get it or they're going to have to pay it. Yeah. And so it was kind of the only thing we could come up with. And, and I will say this, I've had people when they really come down to it, they'll do a 5149 or they'll put in the thing like, nope, this is so-and-so's baby and I'm along for the ride, you know? So if it ever comes down to this, which hopefully it doesn't, this is how we'll handle it. And that's just, I can't express enough how important that is. Mm -hmm. And that document really needs to state all this. And the other thing, and so this actually applies to breweries that are open, is when things change, you need to update that. Like change your operating agreement. You know, if one partner is going to be the, the sweat equity and working every day and the other partner's keeping their job, but, you know, putting in more money, if that changes, then your, you know, your setup needs to change. You know, I, I had a client who, and I, I don't know the circumstances, but initially was set up that one guy was going to work at the brewery, the other guy was going to keep his job and they split the equity according to that. Perfect. But then something happened and they ended up switching. The other guy kept his job and the other guy quit his job and started working and he never changed the equity. And that never came up until, oops, someone wants to leave. <laughs> oh, hey, we never, you know, and so you, the last thing you want to do is try and make those changes 
when now you may be in a more emotional situation and people aren't thinking clearly. So the other thing that's really important is keeping it, it's a, it should be a living document to some degree, at least as far as the founders go. Um, you wanna think a lot about what is everyone committing to? Like what are people bringing to the table and what's that worth? And I, do, I, I really try and convince people, rarely if ever are all of you equal partners somebody's bringing, I mean, unless you've actually can value it that way. So let's say you've got a, an award-winning home brewer who has, you know, a bunch of different like awards from different competitions, you know, is bringing recipes. And then you've got someone who's bringing a business background. I mean, like if, if price everything out, like just give everything a value, obviously cash has a clear value, but give the if you're going to be doing the working every day you know what's that worth you know and part of it you're going to have to get paid because i mean unless you're just independently wealthy um but you probably won't get if you're an owner you may not get paid full market value so your difference is going to your equity and that will grow over time so i also make sure people you know think about if someone's really going to be earning their equity you should put that in writing because again what if something happens and after six months, his spouse, he wins a lottery, you know, or his spouse gets an amazing job, like, and he's out of there. But if he only works six months, he probably doesn't own like 30% if he was working up to the equity. So you just got to think about those things and stay on top of them. And I always recommend having that founder, partner, whatever, every quarter, every, however often get together, go out to dinner you know, and talk about what's going on. Like, doesn't have to be nitty gritty details of business, but like big picture stuff. Where are we? What direction are you going in? You know, I, last time we talked, we were going to go this way. And now that's not a thing anymore. You know, and just kind of, and I think the more people communicate, um, the easier all those kind of things will be. Because, you know, inevitably, someone's going to leave business. I mean, people want to retire. You know, there's, you know, it's not always bad reasons. Right. right. But yeah, that was, a good that was a very long discussion. Sorry for <laughs> it's, it's an, <laughs> no, a long answer. It's good. It's really important. And, you know, I think there's, you know, for the folks that I talk to, the operating agreement is something they're sort of vaguely generally aware of, but not don't really know the specifics of it or, you know, okay, I get it. It's a document that we need to, you know, with our entity formation. But really, I think it's it's a couple of things. One, it's from a practical standpoint. What are the things that you know are going to come up, right? We're going to vote on things uh as a group well how do, how do you determine uh how that vote gets cast plus or minus, you know what what are we going to vote on exactly like so if it's purchases over a certain amount and we need two-thirds majority to you know being very specific about that because mm -hmm. that, that can avoid the more specificity and clarity can avoid maybe those problems down the road the other thing i've seen with the llc's is you know a lot of these entities may have profit but no cash, right? So there's profit. And as you said, from an LLC formation, that's passing through to the individual members. They are therefore going to have a, a tax obligation personally. Uh, and where's the money for, you know, so if you're, you know, six months, 12 months, 18 months into a new business, you really, maybe you don't have enough cash flow to uh, maybe taking salaries or very modest salaries. You know, those, those are real things that happen where you've got, you know, some profit, you got to pay tax. So really specifying like, they kind of take that approach, like what's most likely to happen. And then when that circumstance arises, what is, what's, what are the methods by which we're going to deal with it? Mm -hmm. um, 
So those are a couple examples, and you gave many others. Do you is this another conversation in the beginning? Like, do you sit down with attorney and say, "Hey, we want to start it." We you, maybe you say, "Yep, LLC entity formation, and we want to do an operating agreement." How do you how do you kind of tease out all the things that could possibly? Do you, do you have like a top ten list or something of Hey, these are the things <laughs> that are going to go wrong. How does that work? You know, I don't really do it that way, but it's not a bad idea. I I just do a lot of it via conversation. So I do have what is kind of the, because nine times out of 10, people are like, well, what does everyone else do? <laughs> so I do have a template, but it has a lot of comp- comments in it. Like, look at this section. This is what this means, you know? Um, and certainly as much as anyone wants to talk through it. But I mean, there are there is a, a great part of the operating agreement that is just, and I don't want to say legalese, but things that are there to protect everyone and protect the company, but aren't necessarily something you need to hash out. Um, but I do, it, it, it is more of a conversation on my part of how do you want to, you know, especially the things that like are difficult conversations. I mean, in my opinion, that's that's kind of why you have the attorney and why you don't want to use legal Zoom? You know, legal Zoom's not going to ask you what. Well, what if you guys get divorced? What are you going to do? Um, and kind of point out the ramifications so, of, of certain things because legal Zoom is like you check, like check. I want this, and I want this, and I want this. Check, check, check. And I had a client at one time who, and I don't know how they got to this point, but when they got to me, they had formed on legal Zoom. They had checked the box that said unanimous, and I think because when they started, it was two of them. Somewhere along the line, they decided to give their brewer 1% as like, you know, thanks for being such a good part of the business, et cetera, et cetera. I definitely don't know who handled that paperwork because next thing you know, they have a huge falling out with the brewer. He quits. He wants to be bought out and they call me and they kind of have no choice but to buy him out and at whatever price he wants because they can't make any decisions without his approval at this point, because they ch- someone checked the box for unanimous, which made sense at the time. And it's like, you really, this is the, the one document, I shouldn't say the one, but one of the big ones that you really need to talk to an attorney. And definitely an attorney is not just gonna give you a stock form. They're going to at least be like, okay, yes, here's what's standard, but let me point out here are the, here's the important pieces, here's the chunks where, and like one of the big ones, that's definitely special for us because in this industry, you have a lot of people who work with multiple breweries or own multiple breweries. Mm-hmm. And so one, and this is definitely law in California, and I'm sure it's addressed in most states, but is where someone, an owner of the company does something that's considered competitive. And so in my operating agreements, I specifically, and I have, you know, the, the owners tell me what's okay. Is it okay to have ownership in another brewery? Is it okay to have ownership in a bar or restaurant? Is it okay, you know, what amongst you people, what what what's okay and what's not okay? What would be seen as competition? And we call it out specifically and make sure that, that that's where, you know, again, because it's very common in this industry, it's not necessarily common in a lot of other industries. Um, but yeah, there's there's it definitely needs to be, it should be a conversation. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, super important. And we, you know, I've said this in the past. And I borrowed this from somebody else. I said, you know, these operating agreements it can also be viewed as like operating disagreements. So if you have a disagreement, how's it going to be handled? Mm-hmm. Kind of flipping it around and saying, yeah, yeah, what are we going to agree on? But when we disagree, 
you know, these are the items that are more, more likely to come up and there's how we're going to handle them. And, but I think that's a great point of when things change, you got to revisit these things because there's probably a mindset that, yeah, yeah, I already did that. You know, I, I reformed the entity. We've got all our documents. We're done. We don't need to win. In fact, mm-hmm. it's uh, you can, you can get bit. Um, so let's shift a bit. And I want to talk about securities laws. I know, um, <laughs> you know, when, when somebody's starting a brewery, obviously they got to raise money and they're, it's, it's a hard thing to do, right? Where am I going to get the money from? Um, but you had mentioned this and, um, really that breweries tend to forget that this law applies to them. So they're raising money. So what are the basics and the rules? What do people kind of need to be aware of as it relates to this uh, securities laws? Um, So first of all, I will also disclaimer, I am not a securities attorney. I don't practice securities and I, I send people to other security attorneys all the time. Um, Basically there are laws in place in every state And the idea is to protect people from getting scammed. That's the point. So the scammer out there who's like, oh, I have this company and I'm going to raise this money and do you want to give it to me? There are things you have to do from the law's perspective to basically um, show that you are indeed a valid, bona fide business raising money for a real thing. So... Um, and again, I can only really speak to California for at least the state type things, but like you have to register, you actually have to register if you're trying to raise money, whether you're doing a public company that has to fully register with the SEC, you have to register with the SEC to say, hey, I'm a small company, I'm raising money, but I'm not fully registering with the SEC because I meet one of the exceptions, exemptions that they offer. But you still have to register, say you're doing that. Um, and most people, again, unless they're using an attorney, no clue. And they're, and so you definitely want to fall into an exemption because otherwise you're doing a public offering and you really have to do a ton of paperwork with the SEC. And honestly, I've never even done one of those or, or had a client who did one of those. So I'm not even sure what it entails, but let's put it this way. You don't want to do it. <laughs> you want to fall into an exemption. But one of the biggest rules of the exemptions is that this is a private offering. Private being the key word. And the biggest thing that this is really the biggest mistake I see. And so the biggest thing to know is that you cannot advertise. Putting a Facebook post saying, I'm looking for investors is an advertisement. (laughs) The minute you do that, you basically have taken yourself out of the ability to use one of those exemptions. And that is a huge, huge, huge mistake. Wow. That seems so, like it'd be an easy trap to fall into. Very easy. Very easy. Now, this is also not the same as uh, crowdfunding. So, you know, if you use one of those platforms, but, and there are now companies that do crowdsourced equity fundraising. Um, but, and I do have one client who's, who's gone that route, but I do also highly recommend if you do that to still have a securities attorney involved. Like, you know, there's, there's companies out there will offer to do all that. But keep in mind too, that for the most part, I'm sure their lawyers are more concerned about them than they are about you. Um, and this is not an area of law you want to screw up because mm-hmm. if you're trying to take hundreds of thousands of dollars from people, you want to do it right. Because the last thing you want to do is eventually potentially be liable back to them because it wasn't done correctly. Mm-hmm. Um, 
the, the big thing to think about with securities law too, is if all of your potential investors are very wealthy people, you don't have to do a lot. The law is not concerned with rich people giving away their money. Um, there is also, so there's three types of investors basically, which is accredited. Those are what I just mentioned as in, I like to call them rich people. They're sophisticated, which are people who may not be as wealthy, but have a lot of business experience acumen. And I think most people probably fall into that to some extent. And then there's unaccredited. And I always kind of say that that's like my grandmother who, you know, wants, wants to invest in my company, but knows absolutely nothing about companies or investing or breweries, but, you know, loves me, wants to invest. And when you have these unaccredited investors, that's where the law really wants to see you do your homework or due diligence. And you basically need to show that this is not some fly-by-night venture, but it is, you know, a business. And basically, <laughs> so there's a, a big document called a private placement memorandum, which I know a lot of people have probably heard the words. And it it, it is like a, 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 it's something that you give to potential investors. And then, and that, so for, for you, the one looking for money part, you might think this is a big, like, promotional, make people want to give you money. But from a legal perspective, the way I put it is, this is the document. This is when you go to that, that very popular class in college and the first day and the professor says, this class is gonna be so hard. And you're gonna have to do a ton of work. And, you know, the room's overflowing. And like, as he starts to say these things, people leave. That's what your PPM should do. The first page really should be your risk factors. Why you might lose these people's money. That's tricky because you, you're, you're trying to raise money, not scare them away, right? I know, but you need to scare away the people who are not. Basically, you're scaring away the people who are going to be your future real pain in the ass, yeah. unless you know you're that one in I don't know one in ten thousand breweries that's like, you know, blows up. Like, I I just think it's good. Well, I mean, again, it's a legal thing. Risk factors are your number one page. Absolutely. And you've got to explain these people like, I've never owned a brewery. I've never um, owned a business. Um, you know, this is a very agriculturally dependent business. Mm -hmm. You know, you want to explain to them, they need to understand all the risks of investing. Now, then you go on to say, but here's why, you know, we're going to succeed. And here's our numbers and here's our marketing plan. And here's what we do have. Um, but you need to scare away the looky lose <laughs> ones who aren't really interested. So that's, this is interesting. If somebody's listening to this now, they're like, oh, geez, I'm in the middle of, um, how does uh, this process work? It's so to me, it sounds a little, is it like expensive? Do you just find a, a lawyer that specializes in securities law and say, hey, I'm, a, I'm just looking to do a startup? Or like what, maybe just kind of frame it up and say like, what's the time to kind of get something like this going? And what's, is this, we talking hours and hours of work or is this? It, it, I, it is to some extent hours and hours of work. I mean, the, the better developed business plan you have, because that's a big part of what goes into it, I think becomes less of what the attorney would have to do. So the attorney is probably going to, with you, develop the risk factors I, I kind of tell people in a lot of ways, so the, the PPM is a big insurance policy. <laughs> You're going to get this paper to investors. So they're going to read all the things that could go wrong, along with all the things you plan to do, and then they're going to sign off on it. The idea being that down the road, they can't go back and sue you and say, well, you never told me 
you'd never owned a brewery. I would never invest it had I known that. Here's your, you know, 60 to 100 page document. Uh, you signed it. It clearly says this. So in some cases, and I'll, it was plenty to talk about with this, this with contracts as well, is PPMs can be very expensive documents from an attorney. Mm. Um, however, depending on how much money you want to raise, you know, you want to look at, if you're raising a million dollars, $20,000 to protect yourself from the million dollars, that actually seems like a reasonable price. Mm. You know, it's now, if you only want to raise a hundred thousand dollars, I'm not sure a $20,000 PPM is a good investment. And there are ways to meet securities laws without having to do a private placement memorandum, but you are still going to have to do, to some extent, a pro forma. You're going to have to run those numbers and basically show um, the financial background of what you plan and believe based on due diligence. Um, but you don't have to make it pretty and it doesn't have to be, you know, 60 pages long, but... You also need to, um, this is one other thing I should have mentioned before, but you do need to have an investor questionnaire. So basically, again, I mentioned those three classes of investors, three levels. Mm -hmm. You need to know what you're dealing with because you may not know off the top of your head. But I will also say, because I've had this question before, you don't have to verify the information they give you. So if they fill out a form and they say, yes, I make over $200,000 a year, um, I have a million dollars net worth, not counting my house, and they sign it, you're good. You don't have to prove those things. Um, you've done your, your due diligence and your job, but you do want to make sure where each of your investors lie. The other part of that is that, so then if you end up, you only, let's say you only have one unaccredited investor, maybe grandma's $5,000, is it really worth the $10,000 of legal work to take her $5,000. And so by understanding who your investors are and what level they are will determine what laws you need to follow. And again, these things change. And it's, again, why I recommend a professional um, securities attorney when you're working with this. And, and sometimes you don't, you, you can get away without a PPM. Let's say if all your investors are in one state, you could just follow that state's security laws, which may be less onerous than than the federal. Okay, good. Yeah, Again, good. it's a big topic. Like, I, literally, it could be its own podcast, and Absolutely. I would not have enough to add. But <laughs> <laughs> no, it's good though because I think a lot of people are just not thinking that way. They're just thinking, "Boy, where can I get the money?" And I'll, you know, I want to keep X amount of equity. I think this thing's going to be worth this amount, and then I, you know, I've got two or three people lined up, and I need two or three. You know, they're not necessarily thinking, "Oh, what are the security laws here?" They're just thinking, "Where can I get the money so I can make the stream come true?" But to your point, it's it's super important to do it right. Do it, you know, so that down the road, if things don't work out, you don't end up with a bigger problem than uh, not just raising the money to begin with. So it's good stuff. So let's shift. You mentioned contracts. So we we <laughs> we talk a lot about distribution contracts. So I don't think we'll get into that for today. But what are other contracts that you feel are really important uh, for a brewery and and that need consideration and raising here? I mean. As an attorney, I'm going to say every contract's important, but <laughs> knowing, uh, knowing, well, assuming I know your listeners, I certainly know my clients. No one wants to pay to have every contract reviewed, but some make more sense than others. You have to have your lease reviewed. Please, please, please have your lease reviewed. I've definitely seen too many people get in trouble 
buy things that are seem standard um, or at least, and here's what I do with leases because it, you never really know. And actually, and I'll say this is distribution contracts can also be similar. A lot of things are gonna depend on your leverage. If you have no leverage, don't have somebody redline your contract because then you're wasting money paying for someone to like mark it all up only to have the other side go, no. <laughs> because if you have no leverage, they don't have to accept your changes. So what I'll do with a lease or similarly with a new brewery, let's say first distribution contract, I will go through it and I'll go, hey, look at this part, look at this, look at this, here's what this means. I would question this, question this, question this, and then see what you can negotiate. Um, that way you're not spending a ton of money to have it all written up when they're the other side's gonna shoot you down. But you also kind of get understanding of what's important, what the, the big issues are. I mean, I, there's so many things in leases um, and you know, no offense to any landlords out there, but not a big fan of landlords. I've seen a lot of people get, uh, get a little screwed over. Um, then there's the contracts that people sign because they assume they have to. And, um, and it never becomes an issue until they want to get out of it. So um, CO2, probably one that I think I've only I've had one client run it by me before they signed it. But I can tell you how many I've reviewed when people want to want to leave, want to change vendors. Hops contracts, nobody showed me any of those until all of a sudden they had too many hops and wanted out. And I will, I mean, this is definitely standard. So much easier to adjust a contract before you sign it. Once you've signed it, it's rare the other side is going to uh, let you out or give you some, I mean, I mean, and I think we saw that in COVID. I mean, like where a lot of people were just stuck, you know? But um, I will say this, the, the kind of rule of thumb is how much, and I think most attorneys can give you an estimate. Once they see a contract, I can tell you how long it's going to take. I can see if it's a standard contract that I've seen before. If it's a couple of pages, you know, is it 60 pages? But I can give you an estimate. Mm -hmm. What is the value, the overall value of the contract versus what you're going to pay to have it reviewed? That's probably the easiest way to sell. So like if for you to get out of a contract it is like, you know, minimal dollars, then you probably, then I wouldn't worry about having it reviewed because you can get out of it very cheaply. That's really the key. Most of these, what happens is people are stuck and, you know, and that's the problem. And that's mm -hmm. where the value of having it reviewed can really come in. Cause like at least review is not cheap. I mean, possibly two to $3,000, but you're talking, I mean, five years at, well, this is California, so it's pretty expensive, but had however much a month, 3,000 is probably not a big deal compared to what the value of that lease is if you have to get out of it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, those are good points, particularly about leverage, I think, because uh, I have seen that a lot where breweries will be like, oh, I want to go in and, you know, change this, change that, change 20 things. It's like, well, they're, you know, so that's important so that you don't sort of waste money going back and forth with this negotiation. Um, I like the cost benefit approach too of these different leases, CO2 is interesting, hops and whatnot, because there's so many of these contracts that once you, mm -hmm. as you're getting ready to get open or once you're open, that Ooh. can come. come Which it brings up another one is if you're ever going to write anyone a large check 
make sure you have a contract or something in writing. So I definitely had a couple people get in trouble. This is a few years ago. This was pre-pandemic, but there was an equipment manufacturer who I think declared bankruptcy or I can't remember what happened. And I had people who basically had written them a check for 50 grand, didn't have anything to show for it, but, and then had no way to like get into the bankruptcy line or to get into, you know, to make a claim. Um, because they had nothing in writing. Yeah. So before you write a large check, you know, one that, one that, you know, one that hurts so much, if you didn't write, you want to make sure you have something in writing to show for it. Absolutely. So let's shift gears and talk about other things that may not be front of mind for folks looking to start a brewery. And that's like registrations and updates. There's federal, state, sometimes local. There's a lot of stuff to kind of cover here. So how do you how do you kind of top line that for folks in terms of what can they expect relative to what they need to do for all of these? We're a very highly regulated industry, right? So there's mm-hmm. a lot, everybody, everybody's got something to say about licensing and registering. How, how does somebody keep all that straight if your brewery you know, in planning? Oh, um, so this is the, the alphabet soup, you know, all the, the, the TTB and the ABC, IRS, SOS, all those, all those things. I mean, honestly, you just got to be somewhat organized and detail oriented or have some sort of, you know, app (laughs) if you're not, you know, and, and I'll be honest with you, we do a lot of that work for clients because they just aren't organized. Um, and, and that's understandable. I mean, everyone has to, you have to work to your strengths and figure out the most efficient and financially beneficial way to deal with what you're not good at. You know, whether that's paying someone else to do it, whether, you know, that's finding an app that helps you navigate it. Um, I mean, so many, I, I can't tell you how many clients I've had who have gotten their licenses suspended because they didn't pay the renewal fee. And that's because it, you know, it comes in the mail. Now the key, I mean, I was, I mean, I don't know what I would do. Well, you know, I don't know what I would do if I didn't have something on my calendar clearly wouldn't happen and I wouldn't show up for it. (laughs) But you've, I mean, that's the thing. It's highly regulated and there are a lot of things that you need to remember. And so get a good calendar that you can like, put things in, it's going to set an alarm, it's going to go off. And then you've got to like pay attention and actually do it. And if you're not good at it, then make sure you hire someone who can do that for you or outsource it. But um, I mean, I will say this, the, the nice thing is if you don't update everybody when things change, most of them are pretty good about it. I've actually, knock on wood, never had anyone penalized if they didn't update their license within 30 days for changes, let's say it got updated in 60 days. Um, the key, and this is fed state. I mean, and again, I'm not guaranteeing this, but the key is for you to update it before they find it out and come after you to update it. That's when you get in trouble. Um, but even then I don't, you know, <laughs> I always joke that the government wants their money. If there's no money tied to it, you know, there's, generally not much of a penalty to it. <laughs> if you're paying your taxes and paying everything you're supposed to, they're a little more lax on the, okay, you forgot to update us, update us now. But where I have seen it hurt people is when, so let's say you're about to do a major change 
and you forgot to update things six months ago with the minor change. Well, now when you go to the major change, you've got to update the first update and this update. And now you're going to slow down what you want to do that actually you want to move very quickly, of course, but it's going to be slowed down because you got to go back and fix the other thing you forgot to do first. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that, that actually happens quite frequently. Mm-hmm. You know, it's interesting. There's all these things to consider and uh, nobody's going to be able to remember them all or, or, you know, this, that, and the other. But I think maybe some general guidance as you're speaking is, you know, to have a relationship with an attorney such as yourself that understands what to look out for. So for example, you know, my, my background is I'm a CPA and we, you know, we would have clients that would come in, we'd see them like once a year and they do all this stuff throughout. That's too late to kind of fix anything. Cause I, you know, we didn't know about it back in January and now it's, you know, um, so I think making regular, well, let me phrase it as a question to you. What, with your clients, what do you recommend for kind of check-ins with you relative to their business and things they might want to consider from a legal standpoint? You know, I have often prescribed and I've still never seen it happen, but I, I kind of think a quarterly check-in is a good idea. Um, and it doesn't have to be a very long one. And I actually always thought it'd be kind of cool if a brewery had their lawyer, their accountant, their insurance person, um, their banker, and like we all had one big meeting because we really do as service providers, are, what we do touches a lot of these other people. And I don't think anyone realizes the cascade of, okay, well, let's just say you want to open a tap room. That, that's going to hit everything and everyone that you need more insurance. You may need to raise more money. You, you know, I, I am so not in the accounting world, but I'm sure there are things you would want to change and do an update to make, you know, that stuff work. Um, licensing and how licensing interacts with everything. Cause there's, that's a huge one where people make all these plans and then come to me and I'm like, you, you can't do that. So for example, and again, every state's going to be different, but in California, so let's say I have a brewery that um, opened, running great, and they, but they want to open a new tap room, but they need to raise money to do it. So they're going to bring, they're going to bring on other investors. And I'm like, well, they're going to start a new entity, bring on other investors. I'm like, well, then it's not the same brewery. So you're going to have to sell beer to yourself. And you're actually going to have to go through a distributor to do that because you can't sell beer to yourself. If it's the same entity, you can just transfer beer and you're all good. No harm at all. But the minute you create a new entity with, because you want new investors and you don't want those new investors to get part of the brewery, the original, well, now you're a new entity. You, From an alcohol perspective, now it's a whole different scenario. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I can't tell you how many times that's happened. Yeah. Um, I had one client, <laughs> I hate to laugh. They're not actually even, they don't exist anymore. So I, but they were a restaurant, uh, had a restaurant on their brewery and apparently their accountant, this is why accountants and lawyers should probably always talk. Their accountant said, you should split the restaurant off into its own entity, the brewery its own entity um, for tax reasons. And so they just went ahead and did it. and. They didn't tell me until they got the letter from ABC basically saying, well, and I don't know which one it was, but I think it was the restaurant no longer doesn't have an alcohol license because it was the brewery that had the alcohol license. And so when it became two entities, the second entity didn't have one. 
<laughs> and they didn't know it's like, oh crap, now what do we do? Um, but yeah, it's it's important to keep really, you know, these all these service providers that I mentioned, you know, key and understanding what's going on and what your plans are and ideally can help you in the planning rather than you've made a plan and then they come along and go, oh no, you can't do that, you can't do that. And I sad to say in the alcohol industry, I'm I'm the big, oh, you can't do that. You can't do that from the from the alcohol regulatory side of things. Mm-hmm. Doctor No, right? Yeah. <laughs> also known as I think I've been called the dream crusher before, but that was more in regards to a, a trademark. Gotcha. Well, let's talk about that. So we'll we'll, uh, we'll wrap up with uh, with the trademark talk. So intellectual property, you know, and I think most people are aware of like, oh, your brewery name, you want to try to get that protected, maybe some major brands if you're distributing, get those protected. Um, but one thing that you had mentioned is many breweries don't understand what those intellectual property rights actually give them. So what what rights do they actually get if they go through the process and they trade? What is What protections do they actually have? Well, it's more that I think they think certain things give them protections that don't. Mm. So in other words, um, there are only two things that give you trademark rights. One is registering for a trademark or filing. You actually, your rights start when you file, as long as you actually go through all the hoops to finish, but your rights start the day you file. Um, The other way to get trademark rights is you actually, and we'll just talk goods, for example, as to use the trademark on the actual goods for sale. So what that means is um, creating your business entity, getting a website, um, domain, um, social media, None of those things give you trademark rights. Um, They prove that you may intend to use that name, logo, whatever as a trademark, but they do not in and of themselves give you trademark rights. So, um, and it's really interesting in the alcohol world because you look at home brewers. Well, definitely not legal in California. Not sure if it's legal anywhere, but you can't sell homebrew. So, and when you say it's got to be on goods for sale, it has to be on the goods you're trying to protect. So you're trying to protect it for beer. It would have to be your trademark on beer for sale. So a homebrewer cannot actually get trademark rights other than registering. Um, Which is very different, obviously, in anything else that like, if I make t-shirts at my house, I can sell them. You know, it's like, you know. And then there's also the other, um, and there is, I'd say some different views on this. Well, I always wonder if they're truly different views on this in the uh, legal world, or it's just lawyers arguing for what they want it to be. But the way I, everything I have read and the way I interpret it, which is somewhat conservative, is that your goods have to move in interstate commerce to finalize your registration. So you've got to have, the way I view it is a public use in another state or in more than one state to finalize your registration. 
Like, I don't believe that purely interstate commerce gives you what you need for a federal trademark. And logic's part of it. I mean, why would you need a federal trademark if you're not actually going to be in more than one state? Um, but what I point out to people is my California brewery, I may never want to sell out of state, but that doesn't mean I'm not going to go to GABF. doesn't mean I'm not going to enter World Beer Cup. It's not, doesn't mean that I don't want to be nationally known for my beers. doesn't mean that I might not collaborate with an out-of-state brewery. So there are lots of ways to meet that out-of-state requirement without selling out-of-state. Because commerce, from uh, as a legal term, just means moving in the chain of commerce. So it, it doesn't mean you have to sell it. I do believe it has to be a public use. So that's why I like competitions and festivals. You know, people say, well, what if I send it to a friend? I'm like, well, I mean, that's going to be what they consider token use. If assuming you do it the one time to register your thing, your product. Um, I'm also a believer in that. I think you need, well, the law definitely says a, a continuous use. So from the out-of-state thing, I would say, at least once a year. So send your beer to GABF once a year. Now, again, that's not gonna, that's not gonna accommodate every beer name. And so I do think, I've actually kind of told my clients, especially now um, that I've worked with a lot of these people for so long, like, you know what, unless it's really one of your bigger beers or if it's a name you just love and you're hoping is gonna be a flagship and really depending what your future goals are, you know, until you're really shipping across state lines, I mean, how often are you going to send that beer across state lines? Are you going to send it every year? Um, if you're truly an interstate, you know, one state brewery, but you just be well known, it's really only your, your brewery name that's really that important. Mm -hmm. So investing a ton of money in licensing and trademarking beer names, I don't know how valuable that is in the long run. I mean, and the thing is, I will say this, though. If you're not sure, there's always a better safe than sorry approach. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it, it's interesting, but it, it's kind of key to know what gives you the rights. Because I've definitely had people like, oh, well, I did this, so I have the right. I'm like, oh, actually, actually no, that doesn't, that doesn't actually have that work. All right, that's not how that works. Um, but again, if you're just selling locally, let's say you just open and you don't have a trademark, you're selling your beer, make it for sale, you own the rights where you are. So if you truly are only going to be in your one little place and you're not worried about, you know, a, a name nationally, you don't need a trademark. Mm -hmm. You may end up next to another group, the same name at GBF. If you ever get a booth though, I definitely seen that happen. <laughs> now, now that they do it alpha, it's a lot more likely you, they'll find out if, uh, if there's anyone else out there, but. A little bit awkward, right? It's like wearing the same outfit. Whoa. Got the same shirt. <laughs> Hopefully different colors and different logos, at least. Hopefully so. Well, this has been awesome. You know, every time I have these types of conversations and I really appreciate all your time and knowledge and sharing all this is, you know, there's a lot to this, right? It's like a lot of folks want to open a brewery because they think it's awesome and cool. And it is awesome and cool. And there's a lot of things to consider. So you know, I think the upshot is, you know, you just got to, as part of your planning process, really find a great team you know like you you said it mm -hmm. a minute, you know, attorney a cpa slash tax person insurance person um you know get that get that crew together because it's super important you, you need people like that are you know watching out for you advocating for you and then can because you know nobody can know all this stuff nobody can keep track yeah. of it stuff's gonna when fall. it changes 
and it changes, right? Yeah, and in your circumstance, the you know the perspective brewery owner's circumstances changes, the laws change, so it's a uh, it can be very overwhelming. But I like sort of that shortcut approach is focus on building a good team, right? Assemble uh-huh. a good team, communicate with them. You know, if it's a quarterly check in, great. You know, maybe it's a just a relatively sh- you know quick. Hey, Candace, just email. I want to update you on X, Y, and Z. Some things. Maybe it's a twenty minute phone call. Maybe it's hey, come on over to the tap room. We'll. Um, but I think that's that's super important so that people don't be like, oh my gosh, I can't keep all this straight. Um, it's uh, so that that's one way to think about it, I guess, right? Well, one thing I always like to tell people too, and not just the startups, but like friends of mine when asking about you know what I do is like we're kind of in this weird position of being such a highly regulated industry with a lot of mom and pops, small companies. I mean, you don't really see like this with hospitals and banks and, you know, there is a lot, there's a lot to take on and it's not impossible, but you just kind of need to be prepared for it. And as you said, you know, get a good team together and, you know, be ready. (laughs) Be ready. Well, Candice, this has been awesome. Thank you so much for your time. If if folks want to learn more about you or get in touch, um, what's the best way for them to do that? You know what? Probably the easiest thing to remember is just hit my, my website craftbeerattorney.com <laughs> and uh there's a an email address general phone number happy to help out people and as well i will um promote uh, my other little side not even little my other side project working with laura that which is actually how carrie and i met which is startabrewery.com so it's a great place if you're looking for information and a lot of the stuff we talked about you can find different articles or presentations. There's a huge library of information um, to kind of start wrapping your arms around all this stuff. That's great stuff. We will share all that in our show notes and in the emails with links so people can check that out. So Candace, thanks so much. Thank you. This is fun. Thank you for listening to the Craft Brewery Financial Training Podcast, where we combine beer and numbers so that you can improve financial results in your brewery. For more resources, tools, guides, and online courses, visit craftbreweryfinancialtraining.com. And don't forget to sign up for the world-famous Craft Brewery Financial Training Newsletter. Until next time, get out there and improve financial results in your brewery today.